Let's turn our Bibles over to Matthew 18. And as you're turning there, let me say that we are on uh, lesson, really, probably 12 of our study in biblical counseling. And we took a long break from the last time that we did this. And if you remember, one of the things that we were going through is in, we're in our desire to, um, to model and to communicate the word and how to help other people take the word of God and apply it to their daily lives. We were going through a model called love, know, speak, and do. And we're on the last lesson of speak. We'll probably have two or three more lessons on do, and then we will transition from this uh, topic of biblical counseling into a series on discipleship. What does it mean to disciple? How do you make disciples of Christ? Getting sort of into the practicality of what we've been speaking about from Mark on Sunday mornings. Let's look at Matthew 18. This is a well-known passage, a passage that we would typically go to in the context of church discipline. And we're going to look at that passage, 15 through 20, as a means of introduction. Because when we're talking about speaking to one another or confronting one another with the truth of the Scriptures in their life, we think of that as confrontation. And confrontation is oftentimes very difficult. But let's put it in the context of Matthew 18. Follow along with me, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Church discipline is something we typically think of as very formal. Maybe an introduction from the pulpit about someone who's unrepentant of their sin and they're being excommunicated from the church. But that's really not church discipline as it is described in the Bible. Now, that's the last step in church discipline, but church discipline really is much more informal. It's much more of a mark of a healthy relational church. Let me read a quote from a uh, a blog I found this week. First, don't make the common mistake of thinking that church discipline is limited to public announcements from the pulpit about someone's sin or their excommunication. When things get that far down the road, it should be because of all the prior steps of church discipline failed to bring the soul to repentance. And what are those prior steps? Well, the first step would be self-discipline. The most basic form of church discipline is when a believer judges himself. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged, according to 1 Corinthians 11.31. Another basic form of church discipline happens during church fellowship times, when men talk with men and women with women, together bearing one another's burdens, confessing our sins, and praying for each other. Another form of church discipline is done during small group meetings, Sunday school or Christian education classes, and worship services when church officers and fellow believers teach the word of God to us, applying scripture to our lives in such a way that we are led to see our sin and repent of it. Preaching also serves as a less formal kind of discipline when the pastor of the flock knows his congregation's sins and preaches scripture with faith and boldness, applying it to the consciences of worshipers in such a way that they become convicted by the Holy Spirit and turn to God in repentance and faith. When we think of church discipline, we think of confrontation. And confrontation for anyone is oftentimes quite difficult. 
And we're going to talk about that this morning, confrontation. There are two types of confrontation. Let me write both of them on the board for you. Declarative. And this is the type of we, uh, confrontation we think, typically think of when we think of confrontation. Uh, it's a very little give and take in the conversation. It's one person really speaking to another person. One is pronouncing God's truth and exhorting the other one to humility, to repentance. And it's a valid form of communication, but it's really a form that should come uh, more as an emergency button. Uh, think of a pitch hitter in a baseball game. Someone you send in as a last resort, hit the button because it's all going south and maybe this will be of some help. Only for really certain situations should this be used. And it's when someone close to us refuses to be honest about their life situations. They're just stubborn, they're hard-headed, they're hard-hearted about the sin in their life, and they refuse out of rebellion and pride to repent. And so we come to them with this declarative conversation saying, brother, repent, sister, repent. This is the truth. You're not in it. Get yourself in line with it. But it's really one that isn't to be used that often, although that's the type we typically think of, because there's a second type of confrontation. Interactive, interactive confrontation. That's what we're going to speak about this morning. When a conversation takes place with the desire to engage another in heart examination, that's interactive confrontation. Helping others pursue and see a life of faith rather than a pursuit of self-centeredness. And any type of confrontation has to start with the question, why? Why are we doing this? What is going on in our own hearts? What agenda are we being driven by? So we should be asking ourselves questions before we go and confront our brother or sister in Christ. Whose agenda drives my conversations? Is it my agenda? Is it the agenda of Christ? Am I trying to get people to do what pleases me? Am I simply going to them because they're out of line and it's affecting my life and I'd like them to stop it because I want my life to be a lot more comfortable than they're making it? Therefore, this conversation is being driven by what pleases me. Or am I confronting them as an ambassador of Christ? using his word to lead them to repentance. And really, effective confrontation really starts before there's any words that come out of your mouth. What is the testimony that you have in the body of Christ? Do people see you as someone they can trust because of your, your body language, that you're, you're open to conversation, you're even open to somebody confronting you? You're carrying yourself in a way that shows that you delight to glorify God in your conversation? You carry yourself in such a way that others see that your life is centered around Christ and not your own wishes or desires? That you're building trust with your interactions with others just in normal, everyday conversation? Really putting some of those uh, relationship-building opportunities uh, as capital in the bank, so to speak, that you can draw upon if there has to be a tough conversation. His agenda for his glory is so much more wonderful and glorious than anything we could ever dream up. The opportunity that we have to be put in this church with these relationships around us are God-given, and they're designed for the opportunity of together being more glorifying to him. Whether it's the, the person in the church, whether it's your family, your coworkers, your wife, your husband, your children, all these various relationships throughout life are opportunities to promote the agenda of God, to promote who he is and what he has done and what he requires. And if his, his agenda is central, then our goal should always be to help others see what is wrong and lead them to true change. And that's the key. 
Because if, if our confrontation is just to help them see what's wrong, it's really self-centered. If our conversation has to help them see what is wrong and lead them to change for the glory of God, then it's, not no, it's no longer about what's important to me. It's about repentance. It's about conformity to the image of Christ. So let's look at four steps that should frame biblical confrontation. Number one, consideration. Consideration. The goal with this step is to help people see their heart the way God wants them to see it. And there's some questions that you would ask. Essentially, you're trying to get the, the background of the situation. What's going on? What do I need to consider? And here's the five questions, and the order is important. First question you might ask, if, somebody comes to, if you're going to a person, you know there's some, some, some areas in your life and you have the relationship capital to be able to go to them and encourage them as a brother or sister in Christ. and You want to do so well. And really what you want them to do is to see their own heart and to see the scriptures for themselves. So you're going to go to them, and you might ask them a question. You know, this situation came up the other day, and I noticed it from a distance. Can you tell me, first question, what was going on? What was going on? Essentially asking them, Tell me the circumstances. Tell me the situation that you were facing at that time. <clears throat> what was happening? What did she say? What did he say? The second question builds upon that. What were you thinking and feeling as it was going on? What were you thinking and feeling as it was going on? Now, this is going to take the focus off of the circumstances and the situations and now takes the focus to more of the heart. What was going on in the heart? It reveals the thoughts. Why were you, what were you thinking as that was happening? Were you getting mad at the person? Were you upset? Were you hurt? What was happening? What were you thinking and feeling? So the first one, what was going on? The second one, what were you thinking and feeling as it was going on? Third question, what did you do in response? What did you do in response? Is behavior shaped by our circumstances or is behavior shaped by the heart? Obviously, behavior is shaped by the heart. So if the second question is to get to the thoughts and the feelings, the third question, what did you do in response, is to help the individual realize that what you did was driven out of how you felt or how you thought. How about number four? Why did you do it? What did you do in response? Number three, number four, why did you do it? Or what were you seeking to accomplish? Now, if the second question reveals thoughts and feelings, the third question reveals, the, excuse me, the fourth question reveals motives. Because not only does behavior, it, not only is behavior shaped by our heart's response, behavior is also shaped by our motives. It always expresses the motives. It expresses what is central to us, is it expresses what we're living for. Are we living for ourselves? Are we living for the glory of God? So first question, what was going on? Second question, what were you thinking and feeling as it was going on? What did you do in, what did you do in response? Fourth, why did you do it? Fifth, what was the result? What was the result of how you responded? Did it solve anything? 
What were the consequences, essentially, what you're asking? What were the consequences to your response? Why did you do, what did you do in response, number three? Why did you do it, number four? Number five, what was the result? You're essentially trying to connect the consequences to the thoughts and the motives of the heart. Realize this, this happened this way because this is the issue going on in the heart. Now, you're not trying to point that out as much as you're just trying to ask good questions to help them see that for themselves. Because our goal by asking these questions is not just to work someone through a bunch of questions. You're having a conversation, and the goal is to help others own the fact that the harvest they've planted is what they're reaping now, or the, what the, the seed they've planted is the harvest that they're reaping now. What they've, what they've put in in an investment is what they're getting in return now. That what you plant is what you get, and what you, the way you live is shaped by the treasure in which we invest. So this is the consequence, number five. What was the result? That's because this is how you invest it. This is the heart attitude that's going on. That's the first step that frames biblical confrontation. Number two, confession. Confession. Leading them to prayer to admit their sin. And specifically, and to seek God's forgiveness and help. The goal being with consideration is asking questions, helping them see their heart. They realize, oh, yeah, that heart motivation that manifests itself this way, that's sin. And most people, when they ask for forgiveness from others that they've uh, sinned against or from God, it more sounds like something like this. Man, I'm really sorry I did that. And that's about it. Well, what did you do? Oh, I just, I hurt you. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry you hurt me too. <laughs> if we're going to do it correctly, we need to identify this sin, and then we need to ask specifically for it. Saying sorry is certainly helpful. I have, I spoke wrongly to you. I got angry at you. That is sin. I'm sorry that I did it. Would you please forgive me? I know that it hurt you. The other person responding, yes, I do forgive you. Asking specifically, leading them to a confession and prayer, first of all, to the Lord, and then specifically as needed to individuals. Because we want to see people conform themselves to the image of God. Number three, third frame, <clears throat> or third step, frames biblical confrontation. Commitment. Go in your Bibles over to Isaiah 1. A good question to ask is if confession is not followed by repentance, if confession is not followed by commitment, is it really repentance? And Isaiah 1, 10 through 20 has something to say about that. Follow along as I read. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. 
They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What are they saying? Well, you've got all these, the sacrificial system, all these things that people were doing. But it wasn't a commitment from the heart. It was just sort of an outward, external religion. It wasn't an inward heart motivation by relationship with the Lord. So if we're going to commit, if we're going to confess, there has to be commitment. And we cannot shy away from leaning on God's grace in the sense of radically changing the way we think and the way that we live when we see sin and we confess accordingly. We've got to have, uh, we've got to have ways, new ideas to replace the old way of doing things. And so the question that we need to ask the person is, what new things are going to be replacing the old? If you're really committing to the fact that what you have just confessed is sin, then let's commit to doing it a new way. And what, is that, what does that commitment look like? What things need to actually change? And that's number four. Change. Applying the commitments that someone has just made to daily living. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about confronting someone. Now you're talking about change. What are you talking about? We are. The goal of confrontation is never to simply just unload your hurt on another person or your, the fact that you don't like the way that they're living. It's not to simply help give them insight or make good commitments because people make commitments all the time. That's what we all do January 1st, right? I'm going to commit to a new thing. What actually happens? For myself, anyway, not much, typically. We want to be instruments and others to be instruments and want others to be instruments in our lives for change, of changing to be like Jesus. So the question for number four under change is, how am I going to implement the new? Because unless change is taking place, change isn't taking place. We want to lead others to change. Let me quote from the book that we've been studying as a source for this study on biblical counseling, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. It bears repeating that we are not advocating a reading the riot act form of confrontation where the receiver is silent and the confronter lays out a list of offenses. In scripture, the more common style of confrontation is interaction. The confronter stands alongside the person, helping him to see, telling stories, asking questions, drawing out answers, and then calling for a response. There is a more conversational structure. Christ winsomely employed this method of confrontation in his parables. He spoke so that people might see, and in seeing might confess, and in confessing might repent. He confronted powerful attitudes, beliefs, and actions, yet in a way very different from our tense scenes of confrontation. Let's go over in our Bibles to 2 Samuel 12. If this is what biblical confrontation is to look like, this thought of consideration, confession, commitment, change, 
let's look at see, look to see how it actually plays out, how, how you actually might do this. And this is modeled for us in 2 Samuel 12, which we should know. This is the rebuke that Nathan brings against King David. King David is in sin. He is, uh, hasn't committed one little sin. He's committed quite a few, and they're growing on one another. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. He's lying. He's got all of these things that are going on. The Lord knows about it, and the Lord sends Nathan. Look at verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used, he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and, ha and before the son. David said to Nathan, <coughs> I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because this deed, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's look at a few things. Note the severity of the issues. This wasn't some stealing of an eraser, a bit of a lie. Nathan had just committed adultery. He had committed murder. Excuse me, David had committed murder and adultery. Nathan wasn't coming just to simply give him a bit of spiritual guidance or a pick-me-up talk. There had been severe issues. There were severe issues on the table. Note the degree of spiritual blindness. David is God's anointed king, and yet he is uh, completely blind to the sin that he had done. Tripp's book says the most... The more outrageous the sin, the more fundamental the blindness that covers it. He had gotten himself in so deep he couldn't even see what was going on. 
Notice the way Nathan comes in. The Lord, first of all, sends Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, it seems to be that there's some sort of conversation going on here, obviously. Nathan doesn't come charging in, red-faced, pointing his finger, screaming at him. You're the man. You're the one who did all this wrong. He comes in simply telling a story. He uses a metaphor. And he tells a story, and using this metaphor, was something that David would know well. This theme of a shepherd loving his sheep. And he crafts a story exactly for the heart of David knowing he's going to be able to get to the heart of David through a story that David would be able to understand well. Notice that he, said he has this interactive style of communication. Look at verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David was not mad at Nathan. Did you notice that? Typically, when we go in a style of confrontation where we don't do it very well and the other person just gets mad at us. But Nathan has employed the strategy of a, of a wise story, of helping David see his heart. And then the anger was not directed toward Nathan. It was actually directed toward the heart issues. David just did not understand that at first. Notice this story, <clears throat> this story about this rich man with many flocks and herds and a poor man <clears throat> with one little lamb. It's, uh, it's not very detailed, but there's a lot of application that gets to the heart of the story. And the story certainly accomplishes its purpose. David's heart burns with anger, as you see there in verse 5. And David's the first one who speaks. And he speaks in a way that really is confronting himself. He just does not quite realize that. And then Nathan takes David's self-confrontation and applies it to his life. He says, okay, listen, you're the guy. This story is exactly what you've done. You don't like it any more than I do, but that's what you're doing as well. This helps sometimes when, we, when we're talking to someone else and we're telling them a story and they're saying, yeah, that's not right when that person would do that. And then you can turn and say, but... But what you just did, can, can, do you see that's what you're doing as well? Oh, yeah, okay. But that, and David, uh, Nathan follows this self-confrontation by explaining what his sin was, adultery and murder, and then see how David responds. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Confession comes. He's not shifting the blame. He's not making an excuse. He's simply confessing the sin. And then Nathan does what we oftentimes fail to do as well. Once the sin is confessed, he encourages him in the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So he encouraged him in the fact that the Lord had forgiven him his sin, but he also didn't shy away from helping him understand, listen, there are consequences to sin. And the consequence comes in the form that the child will die. So we have four steps that frame biblical confrontation. Let's look back over them as we prepare to close here in a few minutes. First of all, consideration. 
The goal being here to help people see the heart the way God wants them to see it. And they asked, were to ask five different questions. And I think we could probably see a bit of what Nathan did as well with David. What was going on? Explain the circumstances. Explain the situations that others were facing. What were you facing? Tell me what happened. Number two, what were you thinking and feeling as it was going on? Taking the focus off the circumstances and turning it to heart motivation, heart examination, thoughts of the heart. And what did you do in response? Showing that our behavior is shaped by our heart's response. Why did you do it? Number four, why did you do it? What were you seeking to accomplish? Behavior always expresses motives, always expresses what is central to the heart. And number five, what was the result? What were the consequences of how you responded? Then number two, the second step was confession, leading others to admit their sins specifically, confess their sins specifically to God asking forgiveness and seeking forgiveness from others if they sinned against them. Then number three, commitment. can't just be a confession. There has to be a commitment to change what new things need to come in to replace the old. We can certainly help this with our children as well. When they're sinning, we can't just tell them to stop doing something. We have to show them how uh, when they're committing to not doing that anymore, here's what they need to do to change. And then the fourth step, being changed, helping people with that chain, seeing them through the commitment all the way to daily living. Confrontation is more than just uh, declarative. We want to be a church where church discipline isn't, doesn't have to get to the final step because it's modeled in relationships, one-on-one conversations, you're in your own self being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, where you're sitting under the preaching of the Word or you're reading the Word in your daily quiet time, or someone comes to you, a brother or a sister, whether it's familial or whether it's the spiritual family, saying, hey, how are things going? And they're helping you, and they're encouraging you, and they're spurring you on in godliness. That, in many ways, is is church discipline. We think of it as something huge and big and nasty, but it's really relational. And it's only when everything has failed that we have to get to that final step. Before we close in prayer, questions, thoughts, things that come to mind, things we can clarify about this? Two quick things. Two quick things. I never understood in that passage whether the most important thing was Nathan's ability and willingness to go out on the faith. Yeah. Or David's immediate willingness to confess. Or that the consequences of the sin are always better The other thing that I, and I, maybe I'm the only guy who didn't know this, but somebody told me a couple weeks ago, discipline's root is disciple. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to be discipling. Yes. And I never thought about that before. That we, I, I always think of it as, I'm going to tell you how wrong you are because I know how right I am. Right. But it's about bringing you up and out of that muck yeah. to move on. So Tom just stated that the root word of discipline is discipling, encouraging one another, walking with one another. We looked at that last week from Mark, you know, doing what Jesus did, teaching what Christ taught, walking with Christ, helping others to do the same. And then 
uh, he also stated the fact that in that Second Samuel passage, what's the main theme? Is it Nathan's ability to handle David? Is it David's repentance? Or is it the fact that consequences to sin are always better than continuing in that sin? And I think it's all three. I think it's all three. Other thoughts, considerations, questions, things we can clarify? Yes. Yes. Anyone else? Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to be a church that is that has a, a discipleship culture. We want to be a church that has deep, strong relationships rooted and grounded and centered on Christ and in Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us in our conversations with one another, even in a few minutes. That these conversations might be edifying, they might be strengthening, but they also might be loving in the sense, Father, that we are not willing to just let one another carry on in life in sin and rather in love calling them pleading with them encouraging them and walking alongside and helping and and even as necessary modeling what it means to walk with the Lord Father we thank you that you have set an example for us that we can look in your word and see what it means to repent to see what it means to walk as you walk walked to understand, Father, what you have taught us. To understand what it means to walk in close relationship with you. I pray, Father, that you would protect us as a church, as the local body of believers here in Fredericksburg. That you protect us from, from unconfessed sin, from unrepented sin. We might be those, Father, that are continually walking in transparency with you and desiring for you to come and, and that we would quickly admit and confess those sins, taking the consequences as necessary and yet delighting that in that confession the consequences are always less than continuing to walk in sin. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. And I thank you for those who were able to come pray that they might have been encouraged in some way through your word. Transform us, Lord. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.